everybody, welcome back to the I Play 2 podcast, where relatives of famous athletes, entertainers, and musicians get to tell their stories. I'm your host, Rob Adler. This week, former volleyball player Blair Moon joins the show. In 2002, Blair was named to the Fab 50 by Volleyball Magazine. Also, she made the All-ACC freshman team while at Georgia Tech and played in the NCAA tournament that season as well. Later, Blair transferred to Tulane, where during her junior season, she was top five on the team in aces, blocks, and digs. Her father, Warren Moon, was the 1990 NFL Player of the Year and is enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Blair, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. Very happy to be here. And thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. My first question is, how did you get into volleyball? A very interesting question, because I was trying to think back to that and kind of dovetails into a lot of what made sense for the rest of the family. My sister, who was just my everything growing up, I wanted to do everything that she did. And she was playing soccer, so I played soccer. Then she started playing basketball, and I started playing basketball. And then her and her group of friends kind of got involved with volleyball, which for Texas, I'm not going to say it was a new sport, but it was not nearly as popular as it is now. So she started playing and I joined the same club that she was playing for. And that was convenient for my mom to take us both to practice at the same time. There were four of us and I took to it and the rest is history. Did you like to play with your sister? Oh yeah, it was fun. I think for me, it was way more fun than it was for her because she was older and she wanted to have her own things. And even to the point of like, whatever her team names were, I was like, oh, that's so cool. I remember one soccer team, she was called the Wild Things. And I tried to implement that for my younger age group. And there were times when my parents were like, okay, it's gone too far. You need to pick another name. But yeah, it was super fun to play with her. How competitive were your siblings, both on and off the athletic field? I don't even know if competitive is big enough of a word. We compete with everything, whether it's who can eat the most tacos at taco night or who can make the most pieces of paper into the trash can. We compete all the time. Family events turn into big baseball games or kind of whatever Athletic equipment is laying around. I think that our children have gotten a healthy dose of that as well, passed down to them because they're also very competitive. But yeah, we compete in everything. When you were starting to play volleyball and getting better, when was the first time you realized that perhaps you could play at the collegiate level? I would say definitely around high school. I didn't really understand what the recruiting process, like how big that was. I had people coming to watch my team. I was fortunate enough to play for some really, really good teams with some girls who we had been together for years and years. So we were always kind of on a bigger stage and better brackets or things like that. And so freshman, sophomore year, when the big name schools when there's a Stanford and a Nebraska and UT and bigger schools following everywhere that you go throughout a tournament. That's when people start to talk and it's very cool. Oh my gosh. What if they wrote me a letter or they wrote me a letter? And so you start getting your first few and 
then they start coming from bigger names. And that's kind of when I was like, okay, I think I can do this. When it came down to making a decision, what appealed to you about Georgia Tech over, let's say, another school? Georgia Tech for me was all about culture and just a feeling I had. At 17, I don't even know if I'd really heard much about Georgia Tech and I knew they existed, but I didn't know much about Atlanta and I fell in love with Atlanta. It was a lot like where I was from, but there was just so much more greenery and just hills and landscape and things. And the girls were awesome. One of my very best friends in the world, I met her on my visit and got to hang with her. She was kind of my buddy. They kind of assign you to recruits. And I would definitely say it was a cultural sort of where we were going, where the program was going. There was a lot of opportunity there. You mentioned Atlanta was a little similar to where you grew up. Could you talk about kind of growing up in Houston a little bit? Born here. I was born the first year my dad started in the NFL after his career in Canada. Born and raised on the south side of Houston. I loved every minute of it. I really love Texas and it's a really great place. And where I grew up specifically was very family oriented. We knew everybody. We all kind of grew up, as I said, in the same schools and went through all the things together. I did have to move in second grade, which I thought I'd never forgive my parents for, but we've gotten over it since. But my dad made it and he built his dream home and we were on a lake. So we were outside all day, every day, fishing, running, jumping, doing all the things that kids do. So it was a great childhood. Your dad at that time was one of the sporting icons of Houston with Akeem Olajuwon, the tail end of Nolan Ryan and some others. Was it difficult to kind of create your own identity as opposed to just being the daughter of Warren Moon? My parents did such a good job of just normalizing our life and making sure that we recognize that the fun things that we got to do and things that were maybe a little unique or different from experiences our friends were having and just to be grateful. And once I did start getting really into sports, it was always there. It was always Warren Moon's daughter or hearing people whisper when you go by, but I didn't latch onto that as something that I needed to overcome. I can't speak for my brothers. I'm sure that's probably a tougher road for a boy coming after a football player. But yeah, for me, it, it was so normal and just every day that it wasn't something that I needed to battle. You mentioned that your dad built a house on a lake. Did you ever swim competitively just because you had access to water every day? I did, but this was before access to that type of water. So yes, my parents put us in swim team starting at four years old. And kind of when I came to a crossroads, fast forward to about my sophomore year of high school, it was like, you can't do both because swimming is year round. It's a lot. And once you get to that age, I think with any sport, you should probably start narrowing down what you want to do and kind of focusing in on that. So Swimming was something that I had considered maybe doing in college, especially earlier in my life. But funny story, <laughs> living on the lake, we learned very quickly. There were several very large alligators in the lake that we would jump and swim in when we first moved there. 
So that was a very short-lived frolic in the lake once we found out that there were alligators under us. Alligators couldn't have been too much fun to discover that you had. They weren't great, but then they became like a part of our existence. They would sleep underneath our trampoline or just be sunbathing on our dock or something. So the house that he built was originally a wetland. And so there were snakes, frogs, huge spiders, and just all the outdoor elements that you can think of. You would think that I wouldn't be scared of that stuff now, but that's not the case. However, we did have one time where there was a 12-foot alligator and my dogs, they didn't get the memo about the alligators being in the water. And so one had attacked my dog. He survived. He was great. His name was Mr. French. He had nine lives like a cat. But yeah, we had the Parks and Wildlife come out and he had spawned a whole family of alligators that lived just around the bend, which was affectionately named Alligator Island. Alligator Island was a no-go. It was a no-go. Yes. Even by boat, I wouldn't recommend With being a swimmer and being a volleyball player, you played basketball, you played soccer. How was the decision made to determine that you were going to play volleyball going forward? And what was that conversation like with your parents? My basketball career was very short-lived. Around seventh grade, when it came time to try out for that team, there were conflicts between volleyball and basketball. And so my dad made me pick another time where I was like, I will never forgive you for this. So I wasn't able to try out and play on the team because I needed to honor the commitments that I had already made to play club volleyball. And so then with swimming, I really liked to swim. I was good at it, but I just had so much fun playing volleyball. A lot of it had to do, I think, with my friends being on the same team, but I had gotten a lot of success in a relatively short time. And again, I had so much fun. I still have fun playing volleyball. So I think it was just the enjoyment of it. For listeners who might not be as familiar with volleyball as other sports, particularly prior to college, could you kind of explain the difference between club teams and high school teams? Club teams are auxiliary, kind of outside of your school system. For us, it was, we drove about 45 minutes two times a week for three-hour practices so we could play for what we consider to be the best club in the city. I think if you are interested in perfecting your skills and refining, I guess, your abilities, then club would be something that would give you more reps, give you more opportunities to play, all those things. But high school, I know I've said it over and over again, but playing with the same girls I'd played with since we could have a school volleyball team in seventh grade, same setter, same middle blocker, same outside hitters, same everything. High school was the best experience ever. I do remember one time I had a little diva moment in my practice. We had a male coach who played and he was really good. And I played on the right side and I was in the front row and he hit our setter in the face outside of my block. It wasn't my fault, but when it was my turn to go back row, I kind of stepped out of the way when I saw that the line was open and he could potentially hit me in the face. And he kind of took me aside and I was like, no one's going to hit like that. And we had a talk and I now realize I was having a moment, but I remember him telling me there will be no experience like high school volleyball. And he was a hundred percent right. So distinct differences, but both super beneficial to how much I was able to grow as a player. Did the teams like baseball, football support the volleyball team and vice versa in oh, yeah. games and all that stuff? 
Yeah, that atmosphere was so fun. We had traditions that had gone back since before I was there. We would play Shania Twain, Any Man of Mine, and we would stomp and clap before we would run out onto the court. And it got to the point where the entire gym knew what we were going to do. And then right after that was Tina Turner, Simply the Best. And this does not sound like the most pump up type music, but for us, because of the traditions that it was, it was awesome. I can remember literally right now, just running around doing our warmups and things to the Tina Turner, the beginning part, and just feeling so pumped and ready to go. With the recent passing of Tina Turner, did that hit you a little bit harder than maybe you expected just from all the memories that her song brought back? You know, it did. And then, and this is not to be insensitive, but I was like, give those legs a break. She lived an amazing life and accomplished incredible things. But yes, that was my very first thought when I heard about her passing. Going back to your club days, you went to the Junior Nationals five times, and in 2000, you were named to the All-Tournament team. How much confidence did that give you once you received that honor? Quite a bit. The position I played was kind of like a utility role-ish. I was a really, really good defender, which in volleyball, that would be mostly blocking on the front row. So to be recognized in that way, especially for the role that I played, it's an essential role, but it, again, it's not the super flashy girl out on the court. So that definitely made me feel pretty special, especially on that kind of stage at Junior Olympics. It was pretty special. Is there a particular memory that you recall, whether it's a point, a game, something off the court that built camaraderie? Just making it there was everything. And then... I don't know what it is about being a kid and being able to like travel with your team and just having those moments together. Those are the memories that I have of childhood. All of my big ones have something to do with volleyball, but I would probably say that year there was another girl named Nicole Westerterp who ended up going to Nebraska. She also was on the all-tournament team. So it was really fun to be able to share that with her. You mentioned traveling with your team and your dad used to travel whether it would be with Houston, Minnesota, Seattle, et cetera. Did he ever give you any advice about what to do on the road, make sure you keep your nose clean, all that stuff? Yeah, and my dad was very health conscious and not in a way where he pushed things on us or anything like that, but when you wake up, you need to have breakfast. If he did come to a tournament and it was time to go to lunch, we wouldn't stop at just a local fast food place. I remember one time I was at a volleyball tournament in Alvin, Texas, which is pretty small. And everybody was going to McDonald's or I think CC's Pizza was the only other option. And he found this little hole in the wall place so that I could get a grilled chicken sandwich instead of a burger or something else greasy. Like I said, it wasn't like your body needs to look a certain way. This is the best fuel for what you're about to do. So... Let's forego a Whopper and instead have something that's a little bit healthier. And that, again, is going to fuel your body in the way that you need it. So it's interesting now I'll go to a Mexican restaurant or a Italian restaurant and there's bread on the table or there's chips and salsa on the table. And I don't even really reach for it because my dad would just decline it when they would come over to bring it mostly so that we wouldn't fill up on something that was not going to be beneficial to our body, to our muscles, to our growth. We had milk with every meal. I implement that with my son now. So it just was like a lifestyle, less than a regimen. And I had an amazing trainer who I still work with sometimes. His name was Herschel Johnson. He worked with my dad and 
Jeff Bagwell, a couple other people, but he would come over on Saturday mornings and he would train myself and my siblings, but not so that we were the best athletes in the world, but just so that we started to adopt a lifestyle of even on the weekends, you should get up, you should take on the day and exercise, give yourself that energy. So my dad was very subtly, but he just made sure that we understood the impact of food and what that does to your body, especially if being an athlete is what you wanted to do. And he was also very good about that. If this is what you want, then these are the things that you have to do. He just feels like he was born with that in him already. So it was amazing lessons in regard to health and wellness. No chips and salsa. I guess I'm not a lot in the moon household. Chips and salsa one is the one that people are like, I'm sorry, what? So yeah. And I mean, it's there now. We actually just went out to eat to a Mexican restaurant just last week and we got some queso and it was fine. But I really think that he was just so dedicated to like his little children's little bodies developing the best way that they could. And we had dinner almost every single night as a family. My mom is an incredible cook. My dad would roll in around six-ish after practice. We'd all sit down at seven o'clock have dinner, whatever it was that my mom made that night, that just starts to be the pattern. And I appreciate it now as an older person with a slower metabolism who can't really afford to eat 700 chips before cheese enchiladas. So it's not even something I feel like I'm missing out on. When you're not traveling with your dad and you're seeing teammates or other teams go have fast food or pizza or something that most teenagers really like, How hard was it to stay disciplined? I think the key there is the not traveling with your dad thing. Those first few times where you do eat pizza or you do eat a burger and you don't feel great when you're on the court, that those are the times as a kid that you need to be like, okay, I guess he does know what he's talking about because a Hall of Fame football career isn't enough. I need more. But if he wasn't there, I'm going to sneak some pizza. But if he was there, I'm going to have some pizza, but I'll probably hear about it later. And that's funny because that's exactly what happened in college. They feed you all the time, snacks and dinners and breakfasts, and you've got access to all the foods, but you're not going to put in your order for a pregame meal and say that you would like a whole pizza because that's probably going to get denied by your coach. So that made it easier for me to dovetail that same idea into my college career. Growing up in an athletic home, having your dad away from home while most people have family time on the weekend. How hard was that for you and for your family in general? I still am daddy's girl to my core. Every time he would leave, I'm pretty sure I would cry. It didn't matter when, even if it was just a night or just for a short kind of weekend thing, I would just get so sad. But The five of us, my siblings and my mom, we would make it all work. And it just became part of the natural rhythm of our life. It started to get a little bit harder when I got older and volleyball and football happened to fall in the same season. So when he got traded or moved around, it was a little bit harder to go up every weekend. But wherever it was that he was playing, there would be a space for all of us that was comfortable and just like home. And we made it feel just like home because that was the norm. So obviously I wanted him around all the time, but he's also very, very thoughtful and would find little ways to connect with us on the road, whether it was sending us something fun, nothing extravagant or anything, but just a little token that meant so much to me. But 
I think that my parents, they just did a really great job of trying to balance it all. And my mom, especially of making the five of us just this gang of moons who moved through wherever it was we needed to move through as a unit and as a team and made it all happen. What's a favorite moment of yours at one of your dad's games? There was a family room for the players' kids to go during the games. And I probably went to every single Oilers game that was in town from when I was born, but I couldn't tell you hardly anything about football because I never really watched. I was always up in that family room. That was so much fun hanging out with all the other kids. And we just got to play. We'd get to the point where it's like, we're going to daddy's game. And I'm like, oh yes, that means we get to see this person and this person and play in the family room rather than to watch the game. But as I got older, I wouldn't pin it on an actual game when he was playing, but when he was inducted into the hall of fame in Minnesota, Being on the field and hearing all the things that they were saying about him and his career, that was super special. And I felt very proud of him and of my family. And that was a really, really great moment. I know this isn't a pleasant memory, but were you at the playoff game where the Oilers were up by 32 and the Bills came back and won? I was not. We were watching it on TV. And I didn't understand the impact of what had happened until the next day at school. Everybody at school, all the students were telling me the things that their dad had probably yelled at the TV the night before. And then I was like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't great. And we actually couldn't go to school for a couple of days because it got so bad. But just a little caveat, I cannot imagine what it is to be a quarterback's child in the age of Twitter or Instagram or any of those other things where people can really share their feelings. Was there any security or anything that had to be hired? My mom was pretty friendly with our neighborhood kind of community helpers. And there were a couple of people who were like, we'll just do this for you. We had a gate outside of our house and there was kind of a call box and people would just drive up and call the box and we would say, who is it? And they would just yell nasty things. So there was a time where we had a patrol unit outside just kind of monitoring who was coming to the door. And then... There was a group of guys who got out of the car and took my dad's jersey and just defaced it and just not nice things. And that was, I think, when we drew the line. My parents were like, okay, we need to make sure that safety and security are taken care of. And I can't imagine how my mom felt during that time. I've actually never asked her that. I kind of want to, but I've got to say that the people in our community who were our friends and who were our family and who loved us, they really embraced us and that really helped her get through it. But now... It's probably the number one thing that people ask me when or if they find out who my dad is. And everybody is very lovely about it. They're like, this probably isn't great to talk about, but that game. And as an athlete and as a sports fan, I get it. But that was a time for sure. Were there any lessons from either your mom or your dad after that? Or something that they said that kind of stuck with you that this will help me get through a tough time? Their main focus was just family. And that's something I've fallen back on, whether it's a sports related situation or not. We really did have to be there for each other because not a lot of people understand what you're going through. And I think that when you're living it, maybe you don't even understand because you're in it. So if we did need to cry, if we did need a hug, if we needed my mom, if she needed to just scream, just let out her frustration and be able to go to the grocery store without 
someone saying something hurtful and people don't care that your kids are around or any of that stuff. Sports, they're a big deal. And so I don't think that people really recognize the impact of the things that they're saying and doing, but it was, we're in this together and whatever's outside is outside, but whatever's in here is love and support and encouragement. And from seeing the way that he handled a loss really helped me to try as hard as I could to put emotions aside and present myself as confident. And it's just a stumble and we'll get back up and get back out there and do it again next year. I think that's probably what I got the most from him, the way that he handled any sort of adversity. Going back to your volleyball career and fast forwarding a little bit to college here, you get to Georgia Tech, you make the NCAA tournament. What's that whirlwind first season like for you? So eye-opening. I learned so many lessons that I still sort of lean on today from that time. This is not to brag or anything, but I had a really, really successful high school career. And being a Fab 50 and my recruiting class, we were ranked high. And in the beginning of the year, I think the thought was always for me to start on the right side and to come in and make a huge impact right away. And I played a little, but nowhere near where I was the year before being a captain and leading my team. And I don't think that I could really comprehend. And it was hard for me for it to settle in that I was not a huge contributor on this team. I think when you go and play very competitive division one sports, and you maybe haven't been as challenged before then, it's a little bit eye-opening to be like, okay, well, all of these girls are really, really good. Like there are no weak links. And we started to run a different offense where we had three middle blockers essentially. So we started to run that offense and there went my position. And so I started to train on the outside, on the left side. And the girls in front of me were only one year ahead of me. And one of them was six four. And the other one was an All-American, so, 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 so good. And I don't understand how she was so good, but just volleyball was just in her blood. So I knew that I was not going to play. So my 18-year-old mind basically was like, you're not going to start. You're not going to play. You're not going to be sort of a big name on this team. And that diva moment that I had in high school crept back in. And oh gosh, just all of the things that you do when you're a kid and you're like, I cannot believe I did that thing. That was me deciding I wanted to go. I wanted to go somewhere else where I could play all the time. And that was what was important to me. Despite the fact that we won the ACC and that we went to, I think it was the third round of the NCAA tournament, all of those things were second to the spotlight. And it's easy to talk through that because when I got to Tulane, I kept in contact with some of the girls and I think my junior year at Tulane, so I had been away for two years. I wrote my coaches a letter and I said, I will never forget the time that I had at Georgia Tech and everything that you gave me, I will carry with me forever. I've had some really incredible coaches, but those three, Bon Shemansky and Ben Bodipo Memba and Sally, they were awesome. And they really did try to get me to recognize what it was I was giving up, but I just didn't see it. And so it took a couple of years to realized that what I loved so much about sport and just about competition was the camaraderie and was the terrible 5 a.m. practices, just all of the things that you just dread. That's what filled my bucket. That's what made me happy. And doing that alongside people that I loved and that were working toward the same exact thing that I was working toward, that's what I missed. And 
I just thanked them for challenging me and for giving me an opportunity to kind of wake up and put myself aside and to do everything for the good of the team. If we use that as an analogy, no matter what team it is I'm working on. So he ended up reading that letter to the team before they went to play Hawaii. And so my best friend called me in tears and was like, so Bond read your letter today. And I'm like, what? Again, looking back to think like, this is what fired them up and this is what got them going. And I think he kind of dropped a tear as he was reading it, just as an inspiration to them. This is what you are a part of. You will not realize it now, but once you go away from it, you'll miss it. And you'll realize that sitting the bench for a couple of years in order to do whatever it was I could do in practice, to do whatever I could wherever I was, whether that's being the star or not, is so valuable and so impactful and still so important. It brought it full circle and helped me to carry on. How are you able to use that lesson of realizing it might take some time to get to where you want to go? I use it all the time. The way that you see your life going or the way that you expect it to go, it's so much easier for me now to be like, okay, we got to pivot and go do something else because I did have that moment. And I used to think of it as my biggest regret and my biggest mistake, but I definitely don't anymore. I think that I'm very much a person of faith. And I think that God kind of put me on that path to wake me up and to show me how to be a better version of myself. So I might not consciously like think of that specifically, but I know that it was a platform to allow me to stumble and get right back up and figure out the best way to move forward. Speaking of moving forward, you ended up going to Tulane. What appealed to you about Tulane over other schools you were looking at? I was really, really close with the coach. The recruiting process, you get very close with coaching staffs. So they were really my first call and they were very excited to hear that I was thinking about leaving and it was pretty easy for me. I love New Orleans. I still today love New Orleans. Just the vibe of the whole city and the culture and the food and the celebrations, all of the things about New Orleans are very me. So I was excited to go and kind of try something different. We've talked about food a lot. Did you ever have a muffaletta at Central Grocery while you were there? Of course I did. I do try to eat healthy, but I love something smothered in anything. But yes, definitely, definitely Rufalettas, definitely crawfish jambalaya, all the things, gumbo, beignets. My boyfriend and I just went to New Orleans. We actually took boys with us and my boyfriend a little bit ate himself sick with beignets, but it's easy to do that anywhere that you are in New Orleans because there's delicious food around every corner. Were you in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina struck? I was. That was my third year there. It was the third year I had to evacuate and that preseason was interrupted. And when you've got two days and running tests and all sorts of things, it's not the worst thing for two days to get interrupted. But the year of Hurricane Katrina, I think there were like nine more flights out of the entire city. Left my car at the airport and did not come right back. Our athletic programs were split. Five or six teams went to each place. Colorado, Texas Tech, and myself, along with the tennis team, a couple of other teams, we went to Texas A&M, which was 45 minutes from my house. I was a little bit excited to have that experience, but it was definitely culture shock for us New Orleans kids coming to College Station. 
basically we acted as if we were Texas A&M athletes. We ate in their cafeteria. We used their facilities. They gave us a locker room. They made it seem as if everything was totally normal. Very gracious. And so we played the entire season there. Home games were at their gym. We were only out, fortunately, for one semester. So we ended up going back in the spring. But that was a very interesting time of our life. That was another time, too, to really lock arms with the other athletes in the athletics department and be like, what is happening? So that was a very pivotal, very big time in my life. From an academic perspective, being away for the semester, how were classes done? We just were surviving in the beginning. So again, it's not that academics weren't important. It was just, what is our life going to look like? I remember our coach went back to get my car and some other things at people's homes and stuff because we thought we were going to be gone for a couple days. And I remember FEMA coming and giving us gift cards to get groceries and just being a part of a natural disaster. It was pretty wild, but we just tried to carry on as if everything was totally normal. At one point, I remember all of our records and anyone who's younger listening to this, everything wasn't digital then. So they were like, all of the academic records have been washed away. And we're like, wait, what? But they figured out how to get everybody back up to speed to where they were. But they tried to sign us up for classes on the Texas A&M campus that would somewhat transfer. I don't think that they really made those kind of rules very stringent that time. But depending on whatever it was you were majoring in, I was studying communication. I actually took a music and film class that I loved so much. Then I got to take a public speaking course that was also really fun. Being at a big university like that, there were so many other classes that you could take that were just super interesting. When you got back to campus in New Orleans, what was it like to see what the city looked like? Again, juvenile minds. What you're most excited about is just seeing your friends. All of us getting back together again. But now when I think about it, there were military police up and down the street. It was barren. There was spray paint all over the doors of people's homes. And you started to realize, oh, there were two people in there or someone was deceased in there or there were animals. Things that you see in movies. And so to live in a town with military police just roaming the streets, that too became just a part of the landscape. But I was lucky I lived in a duplex and so we were on the top floor. We got looted a little bit, but compared to other people's damage, it was nothing compared to that. But seeing water lines halfway up people's front doors and it's unfathomable that much water found its way into the city. It was crazy. You don't understand the gravity of it, or at least I didn't until much later in life. How much did Hurricane Katrina end up bringing, I guess, the New Orleans community closer? Because now everyone's trying to help everyone else. I remember the first Saints game. I don't remember who they were playing, but I do remember being in the stadium. And I do remember Green Day performing at halftime. And I just remember bawling, not really understanding why I was so emotional, but I felt like I'd lived there my whole life and that was my city. It's just such a beautiful place with a beautiful soul that, ah, why here? But then you realize, I know why here, because the people here can deal with it. That is not to sound insensitive or diminish the things that people lost and the devastation that happened, but the community around them, it's like nothing else. I think not only like strengthened the love that I had for the city, but brought everybody together. I think that priorities and things shifted. And I think that was universally felt throughout the city. So as crazy and as terrible of a time it was, 
It was the rebuilding process, just bringing people together. That Saints Falcons game that the Saints ended up romping to a win. Yeah, I remember watching that. I was at ESPN at the time. And Steve Gleason blocked punt and he blocked that punt. It was like an ovation like you had never heard at a Saints game. It was wild. And that's what you want. That's what sports do. That's what's so amazing about athletics and what it does for communities and what it does to bring people together who don't look like each other, who don't believe the same things, who don't whatever but they are rooting for their team and just what that did for the city. That was a huge bright spot and a pretty dark moment. Several years ago, the 2006 volleyball team, after going through Hurricane Katrina, were inducted into the Tulane Fort Hall of Fame. What did that mean to you? That was the first time we really all were like, holy crap, we did that. And I had just had my son. I was about nine months postpartum. It was the first time I was getting out and doing something fun. So I think it was super incredible for Tulane, for the athletic department to recognize that year and to invite us to be inducted in something so prestigious. It was also a way to say that I could tally something that my dad had gotten inducted to. may not be the NFL Hall of Fame, but it's a Hall of Fame. It was an amazing time for reflection and for celebration and to sort of culminate all of the hard work and all of the things that you put into a sport or an activity or whatever it is that you do. It sort of sealed that. And it was a really, really, really special moment. When you talk to a former teammate now about that time, is there ever one of those moments of levity that kind of made you just laugh and made you go, okay, I can get through this? (laughs) Yes, several of them. And I don't want to talk poorly about Texas A&M because they did absolutely everything that they could. But we were housed in a apartment complex that was going to get demolished. And they were like, well, wait, we've got all these kids coming. We can put them there. So it wasn't great. It was also a community where students who studied abroad and who were married that was their housing situation. So we're like these crazy kids running around town among families, kind of on campus, but a little bit to the side. So we always talk about our living quarters. We talk about the amount of minor in possession of alcohol tickets that were given. I did not get one, but just from kids who were used to being in New Orleans where the drinking age was 18, not long before. And it's an attitude of let the good times roll. That does not translate in College Station. And then like road tripping to see other people. Our football team were on the eighth and ninth floors of a dorm that was full from the first through seventh floors of refugees. So all of these people who were washed out of their homes were living in the same dorm as all the football players. So that was super interesting, just the conversations and the interactions with people. But it was different, but it was really, really cool. Was Hurricane Katrina a reason maybe why you ended up not staying in New Orleans? I've always wondered what it's like to be a young professional in New Orleans, but I don't think I ever really wanted to stay there. I knew that it would be a part of my life for a long time and that I would go back there all the time, which I have, but the desire to stay and live there and raise a family there, that was never super strong for me. I always wanted to get to California. Both my parents are from there. We would go there all the time. So I pretty much knew after I graduated, that's what I wanted to do. Once you graduated, did you end up getting out to California? I did. 
I wanted to play on the beach and I had a couple of friends who they were working their way up the circuit. I don't know if you know much about beach volleyball, but you got to have sponsors. There's no money in it. Really. You've got to have somebody who's basically willing to kind of pay your way. So I kind of had my foot in the door in that way, but my dad actually got married to a second wife the summer after my graduation. And so I was in the pool with one of his friends who I just met and I told her just finished school. And she's like, well, what do you want to do? So my goal was to plan the Super Bowl, every aspect of it, the parties and the game and the halftime. I wanted to do events. And so that to me was like the Mecca, but you know, I don't know what that looks like. And she turns out was Snoop Dogg's manager at the time. And she was like, well, I have a friend who's looking for an assistant. And her friend was Baron Davis. And he was starting a production company with Cash Warren, who is married to Jessica Alba. And I can put your name in. I'm like, okay. And so I had a phone interview. Turned out I got the job. So I moved out there with the job and with kind of a little beach volleyball connection. And beach volleyball started to take a back seat pretty quickly because both of the financial commitment and the time, but it was great to have a job and to have family to live with. And after about a year and a half, Cash asked me if I'd be interested in working with Jessica. And I was like, sure, yes, please. She's a lovely individual. They're all lovely people. And so I became her executive assistant the same year that she was launching the Honest Company. So I got to be involved in a lot of high level branding situations and really started to understand what marketing was and how to develop a product, which was insanely beneficial to just the rest of my life. And definitely was the catalyst to my current situation where working in marketing and working with brands. I was there for about five years, got to move around a little bit. She was working on a couple movies and things. So I was in New York. I had the best time while I was working with her and in California and just on the West Coast. What's a funny story that you have with Miss Alba that you wouldn't mind sharing? When you are an assistant and depending on who you work for, which again, Jessica was amazing. Every day is different. And there were days when I would pick up the phone and it would be someone saying, please hold for Donatella Versace. And I'd be like, okay. Or days just going on red carpets and just doing really cool, fun things. But one of the times I was called upon was a little unique. We were going to an appearance at a club. As we were getting out of the car, Jessica's pants ripped. And we happened to be the same exact size. So I was the last person to get out. And I'm like, don't you worry. And lended her my pants and rode home with the ripped ones on with very lovely cab driver who took me safely to my apartment so I could change and get back to the event. But you never know what one day is going to be from the next. And that's what I think I loved most about that job. I don't do mundane. I don't do routine very well. I like to shake things up. So if it's a pair of pants ripping, then it's a pair of pants ripping. And I guess you got to go above and beyond. You moved back to Houston and are still involved in brain management. What are you currently working on these days? When I first moved back to Houston and I started coaching, but I found a role at a school, the school that I was coaching at to do some writing. And so I found through that, that they go hand in hand, marketing and communications. So I started to kind of formulate in my own head what it was to speak for a brand. And I was writing the newsletter in the school magazine. And so I was really acting as the voice for this school. 
And not only that, I loved coaching, but I loved even more the opportunity to be a figure, whether that was being a force or just another person, but just being a figure in these young people's lives. I didn't understand how fulfilling that would be. And both my parents were heavily involved in different nonprofit work throughout my childhood. So I've always understood the importance of giving back and service and community and those types of things. So I decided that I wanted to stay in nonprofit when it was time for me to leave that job. I worked for an organization called Trees for Houston, which legit does what the name says, plants trees throughout the city of Houston, which was absolutely incredible and loved being able to do more for others through my day-to-day job. And then left there, went to another school, all of these roles, I'm doing marketing communications events, but where I am now is definitely what I'm most proud of. But I work for an organization called Yes Prep Public Schools, and we've got 26 campuses throughout the city in underserved communities. So giving lots of black and brown children opportunities to go to college. We've got a lot of first generation, a lot of kids who would not have the opportunity otherwise if we didn't exist. So being the voice for this brand is everything for me. It's really solidified the need, the want, the draw, the pull to nonprofit work and doing things that are very high level, very important, especially now marketing finally, I think has a seat at the table, which is great. I've thought that it always needed to be, but people needed COVID to recognize that, but it's what impact I'm having on other people's lives through the work that I do every day. Before I let you go, you're a working mom. How hard is it to balance a professional career with being a parent? And what advice do you have for other working moms? Oh, gosh, that is a really great, really big question. I find a lot of joy in being a working mom, but I thought that I would find more joy in the success that I was maybe able to achieve. But now having my son change perspective about absolutely everything. So I hesitate to say, do what is best for your individual family, because that just seems too easy of a path, but it really is not easy. When my son was really young, where I was working, doing brand management and things, It was my absolute dream job. I remember applying and talking to the CEO and being like, you don't understand to work in branding for a mission-driven organization is all I want to do. This is incredible. But I shortly thereafter realized I was not as present with my kid as I wanted to be. My mom was there all the time, picked us up from school, took us to practice, made us lunch, made us breakfast. She was always there. And I had a lot of dread kind of when I became a mom in the beginning because this was so valuable for me and I cannot give that to him. But then you start to recognize the things that you are giving your kids through non-traditional and traditional meaning what you grew up with. For him to see me working very hard, not only to be successful in my job, but just to be successful at home, to have a clean, comfortable space for him to walk into, to have dinner on the table, to have him involved in extracurriculars and running here and there to do all of it. That's what makes me happy. And that's what I feel like is going to give him the most. You start to recognize where you are in life and kind of what the cards have dealt. And 
I think that it's very important to within that conversation with yourself to think through the things that you want to be as a parent and to understand, to know, to take to heart that you're going to feel like a failure all the time. You're never going to feel like you're giving enough attention to one thing or the other. And as long as you're making choices that can somewhat benefit both, if I have to work late, rather than dismissing him and saying, go get on your iPad or whatever, just talking through what I'm doing and why it's important and acknowledging as soon as this is done, we're going to watch a movie. And this doesn't happen all the time, but when there are those times where you have to kind of push and pull and make that decision. But I think that advice would probably be recognize that dread and feeling like a failure are going to creep in all the time and recognize that you're going to have to make really tough choices. But being a parent is the most beautiful thing in the world. And I would not trade it for anything. I feel incredibly blessed. Blair, I want to thank you so much for joining the iPlay 2 podcast today, hearing about your volleyball career, having to go through Hurricane Katrina and working in Hollywood has been fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show and best of luck and hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me and sending me on trips down some memory lanes that I had not visited in a while. Thanks a lot.